2: The first wave of coronavirus wreaked havoc on the global economy. Now, as the Delta variant spreads around the world, several measures of economic activity are again pointing to deceleration. But as the virus itself has changed, so too has the nature of the economic threats. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the market, the economy and the world of business. I'm Rachna Shanbhog, Finance Editor at The Economist. Also on today's show... What can America's history reveal about China's
1: future? If you read stories about America's Gilded Age and you just replace the American names with Chinese names, you'll find that it fits perfectly. And press reset, the new restrictions that could spell
2: trouble for video game companies.
3: China's worried for quite a long time, well over a decade, really, about what it sees as the sort of addictive and corrupting properties of video games.
2: First, the relationship between the pandemic and the world economy is evolving. As the virus began to spread last year, economic growth fell off a cliff. A year and a half later, America, Europe and China's economies are all growing slower than investors had expected. Consumer prices, meanwhile, are rising uncomfortably fast, especially in America. Even in the eurozone, where inflation is normally tepid, price growth reached its highest in a decade. Economies are suffering from shortages of parts and labour, slow and expensive shipping and new lockdown measures. How is Delta affecting the global economy?
0: The spread of the Delta variant of coronavirus has contributed to a month, really, of negative, unpleasant surprises in the world economy.
2: Henry Kerr is our economics editor.
0: It is both prolonging the disruptions to supply chains, especially in Southeast Asia and countries such as Vietnam, which have not experienced big outbreaks before, so don't have much built-up immunity and do not have high rates of vaccination either. And it's raising the prospect of disrupting the recovery in the American in-person service sector, which was supposed to carry a lot of the burden of economic growth. Late in the year, it was meant to come roaring back as the economy recovered and spending shifted back from goods to services this year. But now there's the prospect that that's going to be delayed as a result of the spread of Delta.
2: In what ways does this outbreak of Delta differ from previous waves of COVID? How is Delta different?
0: The relationship between the spread of the virus and the world's economies has changed in two key ways. The first is that early in the pandemic, some of the fluctuation in consumer spending was driven by consumers deciding to stay at home when the virus spread a lot. And that link has been weakening where consumers have access to vaccines. The second way in which the relationship has changed is that... 2020 was a year in which inflation collapsed. 2021 is a year in which inflation has been surging. And that changes the dynamics of how you think about what Delta is doing. The backdrop is very different.
2: Let's dig a little deeper into the first way in which Delta is different. Why are government restrictions now the driving force behind spending?
0: If you look at the places in the world that are suffering the most from the spread of Delta, it tends to be those where there has been a strong government response to this wave. China uh, is pursuing a zero COVID policy. We've just learned that China's services sector may be shrinking according according to the survey data. Australia and New Zealand will face recessions as a result of the lockdowns they've gone into. And we have restrictions in Southeast Asia as well, where populations are unvaccinated. And as a result, governments have been reimposing restrictions. By contrast, if we look at the US or Britain or Japan, where vaccines are widely available, there seems to be now a much weaker link between consumer mobility and consumer spending and the spread of the virus. So it's not that that link's been completely broken. Restaurant reservations in the US are still about 10% down on where they were in 2019. But given the prevalence of the virus, that is much less than you'd expect. A year ago, they were over 40% down. And the important thing to emphasise is that this is true even when hospitals are filling up with unvaccinated people, even when intensive care units are really busy. The pandemic of the unvaccinated, as some people are calling it, does not seem to be strongly linked to mobility. And there has been some speculation that this is because the consumers who will be most worried about catching the virus are more confident as a result of the vaccine. And the people who are not getting the vaccine are less likely to be the type to stay at home and cut their spending in response to the spread of disease anyway. So as a result, this week, we're probably still going to see strong jobs numbers in America driven by a rebound in leisure and hospitality jobs, despite the fact that you have this quite serious Delta outbreak. This pattern is also seen in Japan, which is having a bad Delta outbreak and a pandemic of the unvaccinated like in the US, but where the reductions in mobility of consumers have not been what they were in past waves.
2: I so assume things might not be as bad as last year, but you've still told me that restaurant reservations in America are down by 10% compared with 2019. So we're seeing some sort of impact here, aren't we, from Delta regardless?
0: Yes, absolutely. And it has been the case over the past month or so that forecasts for growth in America have been marked down on account of the Delta outbreak. So it's definitely still having an effect. It's that it's delaying that boom, which increasingly looks like the only path to much greater GDP growth because we've had a year in which the global goods industry has been driving economic growth, massive spending on durable goods. But that's running up against all these supply constraints. So we really need to unleash that services growth. And although, as I said, the link between consumer spending and the spread of the virus is weaker than it was, the Delta outbreak is sufficiently large in the US that it is a drag nonetheless and is delaying that boom.
2: And that brings us to the second difference that you pointed out, Henry, between the Delta outbreak and previous outbreaks of COVID-19, which is that the inflation picture is really different. Inflation at the moment is well above central banks' targets of pretty much around the world, where inflation was very low last year. What does this all mean for policymakers? How should they be thinking about whether to respond to the Delta outbreak,
0: if at all? One way of viewing what happened in 2020 was that the virus came along. It was a big disinflationary shock and economies kind of pulled off this switching act as a result of the stimulus that was put in place, where they switched from services, which had a very rough time, into goods, which boomed. But goods have now run up against their limit. There's all these supply constraints and what you're getting is that all that spending, all that demand in the world's economies is causing a slight overheat on goods and contributing to inflation. Were Delta to get a lot worse and were governments to decide that they wanted to reimpose restrictions over the winter uh, and shut down services, you would not be able to repeat that trick. You would not be able to reallocate any more spending towards goods and away from services again because goods are already overheating. So that, as a result, makes the spread of Delta look much more like a stagflationary shock, something with the ability to reduce growth without necessarily causing inflation to tank than the initial hit of the pandemic. So in this inflationary environment, you might not expect to see a brilliant return from stimulus. Our expectation is now that in China you're going to see a credit loosening, for instance, but this credit loosening is going to run up against supply constraints in the global economy, which may increase commodity prices but is unlikely to really lift global goods production in a way that's going to be really beneficial for growth. So I think we're in an environment where there's less room for stimulus to do work to any damage that Delta does do, which is of course itself uncertain at this stage. And a
2: completely different challenge to what central banks and governments faced last year. Henry Kerr, thanks very much. Thanks, Roshna. And you can read more on how the pandemic continues to change the world in The Economist, including a great piece on why the Delta variant has made Australia's zero-Covid strategy untenable. So why not take out a subscription to The Economist today? Just go to economist.com slash podcast offer.
3: Only from Rustolium.
2: The late 1800s saw tumultuous changes in the United States. America was taking over from Britain as the world's mightiest economy, experiencing rapid economic growth, industrialization, and urbanization. This formative period for the country would lead to great riches and later be known as the Gilded Age a term taken from a novel by the much-quoted writer Mark Twain. But along with the progress came high inequality, a great deal of corruption, and the rise of a new class of wealthy elites. Yuan Yuan Ang is a leading China scholar at the University of Michigan and author of China's Gilded Age, The Paradox of Economic Boom and Vast Corruption. She argues that if you change the dates around, America's Gilded Age could describe China today, which is also experiencing tremendous growth alongside inequality and corruption. She's been speaking to our China economics editor, Simon Cox, about what links modern-day China with 19th-century America.
1: If you read stories about America's Gilded Age and you just replace the American names with Chinese names, you'll find that it fits perfectly. And so I think it's a very useful way to understand China today. Because so often we use these cultural tropes that assume that China is exceptional. It's beyond the understanding of foreign observers. And by seeing it as China's Gilded Age, we can simultaneously see the similarities between contemporary China and Western societies when they were developing. But at the same time, we have to be very clear about their differences.
4: You observe that in America's Gilded Age, you had fast, dramatic, dynamic growth that also coexisted with quite conspicuous corruption. Coexistence in some ways seems paradoxical to us. How was that sort of coexistence possible then? How is it possible now in China?
1: So the key to the paradox lies with the type of corruption that dominated in both Gilded Ages. And we need to begin by correcting the fallacy that corruption is a homogenous problem. This fallacy is being reinforced by global indices such as the CPI, the Corruption Perception Index, released by Transparency International every year and it gives one score to every country. So that reinforces the idea that corruption is one homogenous problem. In reality, corruption comes in different varieties. And the particular type of corruption that dominated in both America's Gilded Age and China's Gilded Age is what I call excess money, which means elite exchanges of power and wealth. And this is in opposition to corruption with theft, like embezzlement or petty bribery, where those types of corruption are directly growth-impeding. When you look at access money, what happens is that it actually facilitates business deals. It helps a small number of people to do more business and make more profits, all of which contributes to GDP growth. But at the same time, it produces serious distortions and risks. So it is what I call the steroids of capitalism.
4: Could we just perhaps talk through this notion of access money in a bit more detail um, in in your book, talking particularly about the land regime in China? So perhaps, you know, with the example of land, can you talk about how access money might work?
1: Land is one of the hotspots of access money in China because it is a scarce commodity. It is a valuable one. And it is also a commodity where the government has tremendous influence and control. Land in China cannot be sold, but it can be leased to corporations to build a factory or a condominium, for instance. And that has created this tremendous demand for capitalist players to be able to buy land cheaply. Or access price pieces of land when they are well connected with political elites and local leaders and become incredibly rich.
4: So this way of allocating land and other scarce resources clearly has serious drawbacks. Can anything be said in its favor?
1: I think it is important to understand land in addition to the allocation of it, that it's part of a larger package of financing. A rapid urban development in China. Local governments had limited tax resources. And in order to be able to build up this massive infrastructure that we see in China today, they had to rely on selling land. It's actually very helpful to go back to America's Gilded Age, because the process was very similar. America rapidly built up its massive infrastructure, such as the Erie Canal, not using taxes, but using taxless forms of finance. You see this striking parallel in China. Of course, the advantages of this system is that basically local governments were able to mobilize large amounts of money, in a very short amount of time. But the downside of this system is varied. You have corruption being one of them. You also have social inequality because local officials have incentives to sell land. And this means that they would rather build mansions and luxury condominiums than, say, low-income housing for the poor. And so you have this irony in China where rich people just buy up lots of apartments and don't live in them, whereas the poor and the lower income classes are unable to afford housing.
4: So are these bad side effects something that can be managed or do they accumulate over time, forcing a change in the model in some way?
1: I think you ask a timely question because these problems are exploding in the situation that we see today where China under President Xi Jinping knows that he is the leader of China's Gilded Age. He knows that all of these problems are interconnected. Corruption, inequality, financial risk, big monopolies, and so forth. And so that is why today we can see that he is taking a slate of actions and policies to alleviate poverty, to attack corruption, and more recently, his calls to enforce common prosperity. Is it possible for Xi to use commands and campaigns to actualize socialist ideals and to take China out of the Gilded Age into the progressive era? I have great reservations about this method Because as someone who has studied planned economies and communist systems, I know very well the limitations and indeed the dangers of using commands. They're good at getting rid of the symptoms of problems, but not the root causes of problems. And usually they produce new problems that then require more commands. But at the same time, I recognize that China under Mao was an impoverished economy. Whilst China under Xi now has a great deal more economic leverage. It's the world's second largest economy. So even though he's cracking down on Chinese tech companies, for example, foreign investors will still go into China. So he has a lot more wealth to redistribute. I do leave some room for wondering whether some of his methods might work. I think that is the big question in the coming years, whether Xi can command China out of a golden age.
4: Thanks very much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you very much, Simon.
2: And as Yuan Yuan Ang mentioned, the Communist Party in China has continued tightening its grip over the tech industry in the name of social cohesion. The authorities have gone after big firms, accusing them of misusing data and abusing monopoly power. Other supposed societal ills, like full-profit tutoring, have also come under fire. These crackdowns are reckoned to have wiped more than $1 trillion off the value of China's biggest firms. But the latest restrictions are aimed at a different target, young video game players.
3: If you're under 18 in China, then the new rules mean that the only time you're allowed to play online games is between 8 and 9pm on Friday, Saturday and Sunday nights, and also on public holidays. Tim Cross is The Economist technology editor. The idea of these kind of restrictions isn't new. They've existed since at least 2019, but it was 90 minutes a day for the whole week then. So what they've done is drastically tightened these things up. And then if you go back even further, China's worried for quite a long time, well over a decade really, about what it sees as the sort of addictive and corrupting properties of video games. So they tend to frown on blood and gore. They really don't like the idea of sort of the walking dead. So, you know, you have to change zombie games so that the zombies become robots. Politics is really, really not allowed. And the rules have been gradually getting stricter over time. So with these new regulations, what you're going to have to do, you have to sign up to an online game with your real name. You have to also give state-issued identity number, which then allows the government and the companies to track how long you're spending online and boot you off when your time's expired.
2: Now, how have China's game makers and investors reacted to the news?
3: In the short term, it doesn't seem to have had a massive impact. So the stock prices of companies like Tencent and NetEase, which are two of the best known Chinese gaming firms, they haven't really moved much. And I think That's probably because the under-18s at whom these rules are are aimed, they aren't exactly swimming in cash. So Tencent said in its most recent set of results that income from the under-16s was only about 2.6% of its revenue. But I think what people are wondering about is whether the long-term consequences could be a bit bigger. How so? Well, one reason is that the impecunious teenage game fans of today are the young adult game fans with disposable income of tomorrow. So if the rules are really strictly enforced and they are really hard to get around, if it it proves hard to dodge them, then you might see the supply of new gamers start to dry up. Because if you can only play three hours a week, you might just not get into the hobby when you're young. And if you don't get into the hobby when you're young, you're unlikely to be into it when you're older. So one question is whether this will start to erode their customer bases in the long run.
2: And you talked about the impact on Tencent and NetEase. ease. Will this just affect the industry in China or should investors in Western game companies be concerned as well?
3: well i think they could actually suffer potentially more in the short term because as with any other market china is is huge it's it's the world's biggest video gaming market it's worth maybe 45 billion dollars a year something like that and and you know lots of non chinese firms would love to get a, a piece of that action but if you look at for instance uh, there's a game called roblox which lots of listeners with kids might be familiar with it's a, it's sort of aimed at children it's a it's a video game but also a kind of platform where users can create mini games of their own it's got 40 million daily users and it just launched in july in China. But again, because it's aimed explicitly at kids, this is going to run right into these new rules. and It'll be interesting to see whether the game gets any traction.
2: So Tim, how does China's government actually police these rules? Gamers in particular are quite a tech literate bunch. Do you expect players to find ways around them?
3: I expect them to try. So the existing rules, you can get around them Reasonably easily, if you can get hold of logon credentials for someone who's over 18. So, you know, if I'm 17 and I'm pretending to be 25 by putting in my older brother's real name and his ID number, then, you know, the system can't tell that I'm doing that. Um, It's interesting to note, though, that Tencent, one of the, the biggest Chinese companies, has experimented with using the cameras on phones to do facial recognition to try and close that loophole down. The other loophole is the grey market. So it's possible to buy all kinds of of games in China that don't have an official license online from services like Steam. And that gets you the the international versions without the the sort of content changes. And there's no limits on on how long you can play them. One of the things that everyone's now asking is how long that grey market will be allowed to carry on. And there are some ominous signs already. So in at the end of last year, we saw Apple yank tens of thousands of unlicensed games from the Chinese version of its app store. Uh, and we've just seen a localised version of Steam that's compliant with all the Chinese restrictions and the censorship rules launch in February. And for now, it has very few games and hardly any customers. But I think if the crackdown continues, you might find that soon the Chinese version is the only one you're able to use.
2: Tim Cross, thank you very much. Thanks for it. Well, that's game over for this episode of Money Talks. If you think the show deserves a high score, don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The producers are William Warren and Amika Shortino-Nolan. The sound engineer is Nico Ralfast and the editor is Sandra Shmueli. I'm Rachna Bogue and in London, this is The Economist.